Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. Here today with two very special guests, co-host Anu Jabral and the one and only Keith Raboy. This is the first podcast uh, since you've announced that you were taking your talents to South Beach uh, and joining uh, the Presidio uh, and joining Founders Fund. Is the NBA free agency analogy apt? Durant going to the Warriors, but just NBA free agency broadly? No, I, I really don't think so. I think it's very difficult to move venture funds. First of all, you're on typically a 10-year vesting cycle, and so it's very difficult. B, you have a lot of inherited relationships with founders and companies that are very difficult to transition. So I think you see it very rarely, certainly at a senior level. Um, and I don't think you're going to see it very commonly. I think it is a little bit more frequent. And often you see someone leaving a venture fund who's been successful to start his or her own fund, which makes sense. Sort of an ownership mentality, build your own brand, do things your own way. That'll continue. That's, that's happened for 40 or 50 years and that'll continue. But the, the transition of senior people is pretty rare. Like Peter Fenton, you know, moved from Excel to benchmark. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty rare, uncommon. But, but you're seeing it more, right? I mean, Sarah Tavel to benchmark. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how she wasn't a GP at Greylock. And so I, and she'd only been there a little bit of time. And so the longer you're out of fund and the more you're a GP, you take LP's money based upon your credibility, your brand, you, invest in companies who often choose to work with you and work with a fund because of a specific person or personality. And the longer you're at a fund, the more of those relationships you sort of forge and the more difficult it is to extract yourself. And then if the fund is doing well, economically, it becomes very difficult because you're think about investing over 10 years as opposed to four in a, in a standard company. And every new fund that you're a partner in starts a new 10-year clock. So it becomes pretty difficult and that hence rare and I don't think those dynamics are going to change. I but I, I think the availability of capital, the availability of new LPs to fund new funds may attract people who are senior who want to start their own. And that's a good thing. We see this happen, you know, with startups. There's lots of employees at very well run high growth companies that go off and want to become founders themselves. So I think it'd be sort of hypocritical for someone like me to say, oh, you know, one of my partners shouldn't go leave and start right. his or her own. So farm. do you think it should change and be more like the NBA free agency? Well, there's pros and cons of a liquid market. But given the time horizon of company building, which is more like seven to 12 years, yeah. it'd be pretty challenging to frequently be moving if you're going to be an active partner to the founders. If you're going to join the board of a company, you're usually thinking about a four to 12 year journey. And so if you are constantly having people move in flocks, it'd be difficult to forge that relationship. Now, at some point, maybe the capital raising and the board mentoring roles sort of divide and debundle, in which case that might create more velocity of change in the industry. Where it's more about the individuals than the firms in the way that the NBA is more about the individual players, right? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the sport, right? In basketball, it's, it's clearly true that one or two stellar and unusual talents can really transcend the rest of the league. And in football, I don't think that's really the case. Um, I think football is more about coordination and synchronization and everybody being running the same play, running it perfectly. Whereas in basketball, unique talent trumps a lot of teamwork. Like the last successful really team that won an NBA championship was the Detroit Pistons that really didn't have a top one or two, you know, player in the league. In the NBA, if you don't have one of the top five players in the league, you might as well not even try to win the championship. It's just not possible. You know, one game I like to play now we're just talking about pure NBA is 
is this person a Hall of Famer? Yes or no? Yeah. Uh, so Pistons may not have had a top five player, but I think they might have four Hall of Famers. Yeah, they, they did. I mean, their best player in some ways wasn't even their leading scorer. So I think who Ben Wallace? Or well, Bill yeah, Wallace? at the time, <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, I, I probably was the most dominant player on the team. You know, Larry, they had an outstanding Hall of Famer coach, Larry Brown, who was able to you know sort of stitch that team together. But I think that's a the fact that it's once every 20 years in the NBA that that happens, it's just a function of the sport and how much one player out of the five on the floor can dominate and how indispensable they can become versus in, in football, really, even if you had the best player in the NFL, it's not clear you make the playoffs even. Same thing in baseball. One player cannot really dominate. You can dominate a little bit more in the playoffs where a pitcher particularly might be able to win a series almost on their own shoulders. But typically, you need a constellation of lots of barrels, let's say, on a baseball team to have success. And same thing is probably true in soccer. I don't think one player can really get you far. Hockey is a little bit of an interesting example where a goalie at the height of his game can really trump a lot of the rest of the team. You see it in the playoffs, particularly, where one very hot, talented goalie offsets a lot of traditional skill and stats from the regular season. And you see more upsets, I think, in hockey playoffs and in other sports. So is Venture 85% basketball, 15% football? Or? I think it's a little bit more like baseball, actually, which is you get your individual stats. So baseball, you're part of a team, but there's an accountability to baseball where you have your stats, you have your batting average, you know, or you like more sophisticated advanced stats, but you have your batting average home runs, RBIs, traditionally, as I was growing up. And that's somewhat divorced and completely independent of the rest of the team. But you do have wins and losses as a team, which is sort of like your venture returns. So I, th I think venture works more like that, where you can parcel out people's contributions, maybe not perfectly, but directionally at least. But you are part of a team. And so I think baseball is the closest analogy from a sports perspective. We're probably going to bore all the people who, <laughs> who are in technology and engineers that don't like sports. Right. The... We're talking about the future of venture. Some people say that it's going to be multi-asset firms. Basically, Andreessen is paving the way. You have a general fund, but then you also have Andreessen Crypto and Andreessen Bio, and you can get the best people each. Do you see that as as the future? More? Do you see M&A in venture, like acquiring? Will founders want to acquire Village Global or, or smaller seed firms that so you can get? What's, what's your price? Yeah, yes. <laughs> Everyone has a price. Get the, get the best assets. No, I, I don't think you can really acquire and venture. I think Kleiner almost did with social. Media. Yeah, they did and it didn't work out. And I don't know if it would have worked out how they proceeded. I mean, certainly experimentation and innovation is worthwhile and maybe someone figures out a formula. But I, the industry, at least at the early stage investing, which traditionally has been denominated by venture capital, so I think of seed, series A, maybe some series Bs, first growth capital, is much more art than science. And therefore, the people who practice it are much more artisans than scientists. And scaling that has proven to be hard. And therefore, I don't know about the acquisition. I also think with the availability of capital being so broad and widely available and in effect inexpensive, the incentives to combine are not there economically. In a world where there was only a fixed number of LPs and a finite amount of capital allocated to the venture capital class, I could see an argument for people putting two and two together and getting five, but where LPs are looking for new and interesting managers to invest in and where there's more allocation of venture than less, I doubt that's true and change and, and won't change until the availability of LP capital shifts. It's interesting. When you talk about the future venture, you're starting to see these different experiments, things like Angelist, things like multi-asset firms like Andreessen. You're starting to see different funding models like ClearBank sort of lending against marketing spend. If we're doing this podcast, which we will, uh, a decade from now, 
what are we saying about how venture has changed in the last decade? You know, I'm not sure it's going to change much. Uh, the more I'm right about that it being an art, not a science, I think the less it changes. You know, how much has baseball changed? Very little. Basketball's changed more. Um, if we use our sports metaphor, football hasn't changed much since the 1970s. There's pretty radical transformation post the seventies in terms of offense and passing and the importance of that. But really football in the 1980s resembles pro football in the 1990s and the 2000s and, and this decade. So I think it's pretty rare. I think there's a lot of hype about venture changing, but when you look at a couple of things, who's leading the most interesting company rounds, there's mostly the same people. When you look at who's generating the most returns. Now, admittedly, that lags by five years in a minimum and 15 years more commonly. They're the same people. I, so I think it's easy to get seduced by the hype of things are in flux. There's lots of massive transformation. Whereas when I look at what's actually going on and the investments I wish I'd made or the people I compete with, they look very similar. Now, there are new funds that have similar characteristics as the old funds that have moved to the top of the list. I think if you ranked venture funds by like the top 10 by any metric, about half have been around for 50 years and about half are fairly new, like let's say post-2008 innovations. So that's a pretty good degree of, of velocity of change. But I think most of the new ones that have impact are following proven playbooks. They just have better art artisans you know, running the shop. Yeah, makes sense. You know, the one thing that surprised me about the move, it, it didn't surprise me really, but what, what surprised me was why now, not five years from now or five years ago or, or 10 years ago? Oh, uh, well, there's never, as, as we started the conversation, there was ne there's never a perfect time in venture. Yeah. Um, and it only gets harder. As yeah. You know, it, it gets more difficult. So waiting, I don't think is your friend. And certainly I'm not getting younger. Um, and I think there is a question about in venture, whether you get better as you age yeah. or, you know, when do you hit diminishing marginal returns or when do you decay? So I think venture is more of a young person's business than an old person's business. So I, I don't know that I would want to wait too much longer, partially because of the time scale. So if you start thinking about funding new companies that are five to 15 years away from maturity, that's a long time for me. I'll be fairly old, you know, by the time the next generation of companies I fund have IPOs. And so I, I think there is a ticking clock, at least I felt a ticking clock on if I were ever to do something differently or different, I would need to do it sooner rather than later so that I would have another five to 15 years of, you know, investments, um, and still be young enough, uh, to think for myself. And then secondarily, um, before I think there's been an evolution in, you know, sort of founders funds philosophy, which is traditionally they were fairly passive investors. They'd sort of write a check and say, good luck. And, you know, hope we invest in the right people. We don't have to do much. They're extremely proficient at that. They're probably the best in the world at it. And they've, proven that. What I've been doing is what I call high impact investing, trying to be as bold as possible, as early as possible, and as impactful as possible. And I think now there's recognition that both strategies can work and that the combination of the two may be the most effective. So for example, depending on when you invest and how mature a company is, the right approach may be very different. So a company that's scaling and working and the management team's really executing, you might not want to intervene or do too much, actually. You're just going to get in the way. So sort of the physician's adage of you could do more harm than good versus I typically invest when it's more like two kids in a proverbial garage. And there's a lot of things that the company could use and a lot of help the company could take advantage of that would yield a different outcome or change the probabilities of success at a minimum. And so I think over at Founders Fund, there's recognition that 
They want to do both. So it's a more consistent strategy. Also, Brian Singerman, who's been very successful um, leading investments at Founders Fund, is awesome at figuring out which companies are working and how to sort of power money into the companies that are on the precipice of, of success before everybody figures it out. And my skill is finding things that are brand new, that are under the radar, that haven't even launched in many cases, and investing before other people appreciate either the founders or the idea. And so we're almost going to have a vertically integrated fund in some ways where he can double down on the companies that I invest in that have high potential, whereas I don't really do the high conviction investing. I'm not a growth stage investor. I very rarely invest at a valuation, let's say, above $100 million. It's extremely anomalous for me. I'm trying to find things before other investors have maybe even invested at all. Right. And so it is interesting. I mean, if you look at Founders Fund, you know, it's been as such a successful fund for so long, but the individual people who've been very successful didn't necessarily have brand recognition because they weren't necessarily out of central casting. I think someone there once said to me, we, we like to hire people who other firms wouldn't necessarily think to hire, but are immensely successful. We don't want to compete. And these sort of, these sort of gems, as you look at the future of a founders fund, you know, five years out, 10 years out, besides what you just said, how else does the firm evolve? Like what other kinds of partners and teammates will you bring on? And will you do different experiments? Like what, what will founders fund look like? So I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'll start on Monday. So that's March 4th. <laughs> we'll figure it out then. Yeah. But, um, I, th- I, th- I think what the fund does well is what, follow- What's your hope for it? My, yeah. My, my aspiration is that we'll continue to do what Founders Fund has always done, which is find undiscovered talent per the Peter Thiel sort of philosophy of life. Typically people that would not be hired by other venture funds and give them rope and authority to prove themselves and give them enough apprenticeship and mentorship to help refine their skills and craft. And then promote the people who, you know, show ability to be successful in a very competitive, hyper competitive industry. And, you know, eventually part ways with people who are not as good. The pro sports team metaphor works pretty well in venture, which is you're going to draft some people out of college or out of high school in basketball. And you're going to watch how they perform and you're going to coach them the best you can. And some are going to become all stars and you absolutely want to groom and promote them as aggressively as possible and compensate them commiserate with their skills and then others are not some some may be very good supporting cast just like you have in the nba but they're clearly not starters or clearly not all-stars and so i think founders fund has always had that mentality they have a lot of younger talent running around the place i happen to know them all which is actually interesting i've tried to recruit most of those people before for companies i was involved in or for funds i've been involved in and or you know some are friends of mine as well so i think i felt very comfortable joining but i I think one of the most exciting things for me was they had a culture and dna of we're going to aggressively recruit for up-and-coming talent and watch and learn from them and then promote yeah what do you make of a firm like Kleiner that literally does like a total rebuild or one? Do you think we'll see more of these sort of legacy brands sort of just like start from scratch? Cause you, you had a problem in the past where, you know, senior partners were staying for, for too long. Yeah. I think it's easier to restart, uh, to start from scratch than to fix. It's no different in technology startups. I think the Yahoo rebuild fix Yahoo is a tremendously difficult challenge. Like let's say for Marissa. And I think that's true of venture funds. I think it may be easier just to restart the cap table and work from there. So we'll see how that plays out. It'll take five or 10 years to really know. But in that one might work, but it doesn't mean that that's a formula that would work for most. That's a next strategy, which I can't recommend. Well, I think, you know, the classic thing people say in venture, because it is a talent driven business is the transformation of the fund as the talent ages is a challenge and knowing when and how to do that 
nobody has a perfect answer. I'm shocked and amazed at how well people like Sequoia and Benchmark have managed it. Um, whereas other funds that were at one point as successful as Sequoia and Benchmark have not. Yeah. So you were at six years at Kosla. And one of the things you said you learned there, I mean, you learned a lot of things there, is the difference between being a venture capitalist and an investor, an angel investor. Talk about that. Yeah, there's several dimensions. I mean, investing in some ways is easy and less psych- easy to make money and less psychologically satisfying. Investing, I think of as a process of giving capital to someone who turns it into more capital. And that I already knew how to do. I'd have been an angel investor for, you know, maybe 10 years plus before I joined Coastal Ventures. But venture capital is a business. It's like running an enterprise business and you have shareholders just like you have in a business and you compete in a hyper competitive world. Whereas angel investing is a lot less zero sum and venture capital, you have time horizons of what are you trying to accomplish and how do you create a competitive advantage over time that's durable? I always thought of my job as more like running a business and less like an investor. Whereas when I was an angel, I was much more like an investor. The business is like any other business is more complicated than it may appear from afar. And so I don't think I totally understood much about the business of being a venture capitalist. I've certainly worked with a lot of venture capitalists and I had many venture capitalists on my boards over the 13 years as an operating executive, but I really learned the strategy, thinking, complexities to running a venture business from really Vinod, Samir, and David, who are my sort of peers at Kosla. Yeah. So you've been in the Valley for almost three decades now? Uh, you're overdating me. Uh, <laughs> let's correct the record here. Um, uh, let's. I moved to the Valley in 2000. Okay. That's okay. only 18 years. Okay. Ago. You've been uh, operating and investing for, for quite some time. And when I think of, you know, as someone who's a friend and mentee of yours, when I think of describing Keith and Keith's goals in essence, you think of a few things. One, I think of operational excellence, commitment to hard work and great results and winning. When, when you think about your life goals, because you don't have to be doing this anymore. You could be doing whatever you want to be doing. I could do berries four it, times a day exactly. instead of twice. That's, that's what we're, yes, <laughs> totally. You're slacking at just doing twice. How do you think about your, is it sort of, Hey, I want to have. 20 IPOs. How do you think about your goals and, and what are the underlying motivations? Well, the most, the most important thing that I've been able to achieve so far, and I'd like to, if anything, amplify or accelerate, is I've been able to propel various people forward and give them the opportunity to succeed on, in, on their own. And many of them have been extremely successful. So identifying people who have the potential, giving them enough guidance, feedback, mentoring, um, and opportunities and watching. So that's the most exciting thing over the, has been the most exciting thing over the last 18 years. It's actually pretty consistent because you can do that as an executive with people you hire. You can do it as an angel investor in terms of people you back and fund and certainly can do it as a VC. So that would be the by far the most important thing is the number of sort of successful people I can help sort of mint. The second is actually, you know, creating companies that revolutionize the world in different ways and propel the world forward in positive ways, have sort of positive impact through companies. I think companies are a great tool to change the world, uh, maybe the best tool to change the world, and being able to fund them, give them the oxygen to validate that they can do what they aspire to do, and that other people can give them capital later once it's, once it's sort of proven is pretty important. And th- those companies tend to correlate with outrageous outcomes financially because if you have disproportionate impact in society, you tend to be an important company. If you're an important company, you tend to persist. And if you persist, you become one of these iconic companies. So the more iconic companies I can be involved in and help either generate or propel, um, the more excited. You know, so I I measure that because 
all these things, you need some method and methodology for measuring and no, me- no empirical metric is perfect. So you're simplifying. But in simplification, I think an IPO is a good benchmark for that because you've sort of set the company up to be a permanent entity and to do disruptive things or revolutionize, revolutionize industries or the world on a kind of a sustainable basis. So I would like to be involved in an active way with the most IPOs. Right. And are you at 15, 10? I've lost eight? track. There's a lot. Double, di- <laughs> double digits. But I'd like, okay. I, you know, like, <laughs> and there's the another, goal? fortunately, there's a few on the way. I think a lot, I think in the six years, you know, working with my partners at KV, I think we funded a reasonable number of very high potential companies. I think the ones where I was point person, there's a good shot for five to 10 of them of really, really being successful. So I'd, I'd like to continue that of, you know, one or two a year on average. Do you have a number of 30, 50, 100, just as many as, as many as you can? Well, you know, I tweeted, I tweeted once that I wanted it to be more than anybody else. Right. And I've been looking around trying to figure out what that is. And it's, it's probably somewhere around 10 to 13. Who has the most? Well, I think Mike Moritz certainly has a lot. Back in the day, Pierre Lamont had a lot. Vinod's had, you know, quite a few. So I'd have to actually like line them up, but I think I've got a pretty good shot of ultimately. Yeah. I mean, YC may have just based on shots on goal. Yeah. YC is different. They're not certainly active investors. So it depends on how you compare, but yes, given the number of companies, I mean, they funded like 1300 companies or so right now, and that's a very different model. Um, I think they will have, I don't know, 20 to 50 IPOs. So that, that, Beating all of YC would be a pretty significant <laughs> yeah. challenge, but maybe maybe that'll keep my adrenaline flowing. Yes, totally. One question I have for you is: so right now you do what ten to twenty investments a year, less more? Yeah, about one a month. That seems it's a little bit more spiky than that. That's like a simplification because I can go three months without any investments and then two show up. Yeah, and my question for you is: you have no so YC is on the extreme end of doing you know four hundred companies a year. Obviously, can't spend a lot of time with with four hundred companies, but you have no shortage of ideas for opportunities, new companies, and you know, a pipeline of really incredible people. What prevents you from doing more, uh, from more open doors, more seed bets, more? Well, time. A good investor is more like a psychologist than anything else. Each entrepreneur and each company I get involved in requires a lot of interaction. That time is scarce. And the more companies you invest in, the more you consume your time at board meetings, one-on-one CEOs, interviewing candidates to be executives. And it leaves less time to find or create new things. So there are only a finite number of hours in the day. And no one, I don't think any of these models that anybody's tried in venture other than YC have really created perfect scale. And as I said, YC isn't that actively involved. And when they are, it's in a concentrated 12-week period, which is a nice template. Nobody, as far as I can tell, has scaled the I'm a Series A investor, active board member, consigliere to the founder model. And I think that's because time right. is a finite resource. And But also, if you thought that it was replicable, you could potentially scale by training people. But because many people think it's an art, it's hard to scale that sort of training and then... I think there are different companies. parts of the role and some are easier to teach or scale and some are much more difficult. I think you could debundle some of these... But also the training itself, I think the only model that's really been validated is an apprenticeship model in venture, which requires learning by osmosis, which requires a lot of data points and a lot of time. So I think it takes at a minimum one to three years to train somebody well, which means this person is actually shadowing you around nonstop for one to three years, which means it's hard to scale. You can't do many in parallel. Yeah. 
One of the things you're famous for talking about is that for, for discussing is is the idea of understanding a business equation. Every every business is equation, and you, people need to understand it. Can you give an example of a business you funded in the last couple of years that you ha- haven't spoken about before? You know, Square, et cetera, the ones you've spoken about. What the equation was and how they figured it out over time. Well, let me backtrack. Why the equations that important is. Let's try a simplified equation to start, which is there's three variables. What tends to happen in a company is that different parts of the company will optimize one of the variables. And that doesn't necessarily lead to the optimal outcome. So the important thing for an executive, the more senior, the more important, is to understand the trade-offs or the relationship between variable A, B, and C. Because sometimes the net output, which is what you really care about, may be compromised by maximizing one of the variables as opposed to the other one. Where, re- where the rubber really meets the road and where this is very actionable as an executive is when you hit resistance on tweaking one of the variables, the really strong executives and founders and CEOs know that they're hitting sort of disproportionate um, resistance. And rather than fighting uphill on this one variable, they realize that they can tweak a different variable and that, the, again, the multiplication will net out to be the same or better. And so that requires, though, understanding the relationship and the weighting of the different variables, as well as having proficiency, and this is the hardest part, proficiency across those dimensions. So for example, let's put some labels. Let's say one variable is sales, one variable is marketing, one variable is product, just simplifying. Add another layer, one variable might be pricing. Unless you're actually competent at all four of those disciplines, knowing which one to tweak and how much you can tweak it and where the leverage is, like i.e. where there's less optimization, is almost an incompetent decision without having significant expertise in each. So it's very difficult to find executives who are that broad. But where you see the breadth of understanding, they actually have a natural feel. And sometimes it plays out this way inside a company. And I've had this feedback you know, occasionally uh, raised about me is you just have this instinct of which one to tweak. And it may look that way to, you know, a junior colleague who doesn't really understand because you're just like constantly right about which one to prioritize. Like, okay, do this, not that. And they can't reverse engineer why you're tweaking variable C, not D or not B, but it always works. And when they want to tweak B and you're saying, don't do that. And then they go try doing it and it doesn't work. <laughs> you've already, you've, you're sort of already understand in your own brain why that's a, like kind of a dumb idea. But the natural inclination of where to double down is a function of really understanding the equation in your brain. And so the people who do this well look like it's easy because they always sequence and prioritize things. When they, Let's say they make four bets a year, three of them work. And then someone else tries to do it without the overarching understanding and at best one works. And this is the biggest difference. Yeah. So Delian wrote in a post, I believe, that in the PayPal days, Reid Hoffman talked to you about you not being quantitative enough when making decisions. But at the same time, we just talked about, you know, the idea of having sort of instinct based on experience. Talk about that story and how that relates to the idea, what we just talked about. Yeah, I think there's a lot of good byproducts of that story. So maybe my first six months, after my first six months at uh, PayPal, I got sort of my review with Reed, who was my manager at the time. And Reed said, you know, I think you're doing great work, blah, blah, blah. I'm very happy with X, Y, and Z. However, I talked to Peter and Peter thinks you're not quantitative enough. And this is kind of classic, you know, sort of Peter speak, but basically Peter has like usually like one or two lines in his brain about people. And for me, he thought I was, I was like doing a lot of good things and working really hard, but that my understanding quantitatively of how PayPal worked wasn't strong enough and that therefore I was recommending some ideas that wouldn't work or whatever wouldn't be as successful or wouldn't net out the same revenue or profits or something. 
So fortunately, one lesson from this is the clarity with which you deliver the feedback is critical because it allowed me to adjust my behavior and demonstrate and illustrate that actually I had the ability to do this. And had that feedback not been delivered sort of cogently enough or powerfully enough or early enough, I would have been continuing down my old path and Peter never would have been totally happy with me. He would have been happy about some things, but frustrated with other things. And it was only the ability to articulate specifically the areas of improvement that he wanted to see that would lead to my promotion allowed me to attempt to model that and demonstrate. Turns out it worked fairly well. I mean, Delian tells the story of how, the correct story of how I constantly, therefore, infused all of my analysis with lots of metrics, data, stats, even some calculus once in a while. Um, and it worked because I got the feedback from Peter, I don't know, three to six months later that he's pretty impressed. And, and to this day, actually, Peter and I joke about that I'm probably much better at statistics and he's better at calculus. And it's all a function of like this debate in early 2001. Yeah, yeah. So we were just talking about business equation. Do you think that is a nice analogy? Like, do careers have equations too? Do you think it comports? I'm not sure. I don't know if it's this formula. I think it may depend upon the career, actually. There are some career paths that are, are common, and there there's a lot of. And any anything that there's a lot of, you, by definition, can kind of model and turn into a math equation. And then there's some career paths that are kind of one-off, one-of-a-kind. I think that's probably harder to model and turn into an equation. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I, I haven't really overly thought about, uh, deeply thought about this. Do you think there are principles that apply between like startups and career thinking in the sense of you could say career, like find out where your unfair advantage is, double down on that, you know, find. Yes, absolutely. There, you know? I, I think this applies to venture. It applies to startups. It applies to professional endeavors or career, which is you want to find what you can be best at and exceptional at and, and sort of in some ways the rarest skill you have and you want to leverage that as much as possible if you want outrageous outcomes. The more you're commoditized and the more you're competing on a commoditized dimension, by definition, you're going to land in the middle of the bell curve or at least be subject to whims or luck. The more that you have a unique skill, the more you can articulate that skill and leverage it the, mo the as frequently as possible, the more you can offset random waves or luck. Right. So you advise a lot of people as they think about career moves, we, our whole podcast last time was a deep dive into that. But one question I didn't ask you is, I was framing it two different ways. One is, what's a big a mistake that you see people consistently make besides joining big companies, if, if you feel like that is one? And two is, what's an uncomfortable truth about building a career that many people know, but people don't articulate? Perhaps, for example, like early, early employee equity is is often off on risk. Yeah, I, I, so, I mean, there's many misadventures one can go on, but let's say some common refrains. Trying to choose which company is going to be successful is a fool's errand, particularly early. The best venture, Hall of Famers, basically are about 30 to 40% right. So if the Hall of Famers in the world are going to be 30 to 40% right, the idea that you as an individual without the professional expertise and certainly not without the, without the Hall of Fame ability are going to cherry pick successfully your first company makes no sense whatsoever. So I always recommend, and we've talked a little bit about previously, select your boss, which is a, a more tractable problem for a normal person. And it, you want to select your boss from someone you can learn from who's excellent. And if that goes well, you'll be preparing yourself for over a longer time horizon, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, to be in the right place at the right time. But that you shouldn't try to choose what the right place, right time is, especially early in your career. 
One thing you've also wanted to do is monopolize talent. And you've talked about it for, for a decade plus. What is the best approach you've seen or best approach you've considered or what could that look like for, for you to monopolize talent? Well, you know, it stems from the philosophy that both Peter Thielhoff and Vinod Koslahav, the way Vinod says it, I, I sort of like, which is he describes it as the team you build is the company you build. And so everybody gets often distracted with technology, technical innovation, and a bunch of other things where it really comes down to who are the people in the building? What's the critical density of their talent? And how long can you sustain them working together? That was the story of PayPal. We had a substantial group of talented people that worked very well together, worked very hard together, and were able to at least stay together for two plus years. And if you can do that, you can achieve important things. So I focus all on the people and a lot less on the market, a lot less on the product, and a hell of a lot less on the technology. So therefore, if you believe those sort of first principles, the natural conclusion is to build the most important companies, the most valuable companies is how do you aggregate all the talented people and put them in one place? So that's what we did at PayPal. Now, fortunately at PayPal, the rest of the market, meaning the rest of Silicon Valley, completely imploded. So the only thing we had to do was identify the right people because if we gave them an offer, they would accept it. So our acceptance rate at PayPal was well over 90% because we were one of like two people extending job offers. So that's obviously different different than the last 10 years in Silicon Valley where no company that I'm aware of at any scale has a 90% accept rate because you just can't easily attract that talent in an unfair way. I do think, though, that it's worth thinking and brainstorming about how would one do that, maybe not in the hottest market, which we're in today, where everybody can start their own company, raise capital. That may be too difficult an intellectual exercise to conquer. But let's say in a more mediocre market, uh, where capital is a little bit more expensive, a little bit rare, could one monopolize talent? And if one can solve that problem, solve that equation, so to speak, then by definition, I believe the outcome of that company will be very high and successful. And hence, that's what my job is, is to create companies that achieve unusually great things. Yeah. People mostly think about aggregating talent in two key ways. One is you're building a company and you want to hire people for that company. Two is you're an investor and you want to find the next best founders. And I, for myself, I tend to think of where can I build communities in uh, spaces where other people haven't dominated yet. So for example, dorm room fund is, you know, an example of, you know, trying to build communities in college campuses that get access to everything they're doing. There's different vertical you know, communities around specific sectors where they build, you know, talent and a flywheel there. And then on deck has taken a more horizontal standpoint of trying to be the first call for people who are just thinking about starting or joining their, their next thing. And then you could also build communities outside of talent in the sense of if you own all these great LPs, maybe people will want to take your money or if you, have access to all these investors through a scout program. They're sort of different. What's your take on that? <laughs> well, communities have proven to be a, a sort of a network effect for startups, right? So if you look at some of the biggest companies created, some of the consumer companies, they're community generated. Or you look at some enterprise companies like, let's say, GitHub um, or some of the developer products are community driven. So there's actually proven evidence in the history of technology companies that community works and has durable advantage. Now, can you scale that to investing? Maybe. I think for short periods of time, absolutely one can. Uh, YC has built a community that seems vibrant and has created some true advantages. I do think, though, that if you tap into a community that is different, which is a great way to start a new fund or pursue a new strategy, that people will fast follow. And therefore, the community advantage may only last for a short period of time and eventually you need something that lasts for a very long time. 
So for example, you know, YC tapped into a different type of founder originally with a technical bias, with a certain age for the most part, often dropouts, with a certain philosophy of life. And then people replicated that. I think that unless you get a few year window before people copy what you're doing, it'd be very difficult to build a community at enough scale with enough momentum that it becomes permanent. If they didn't have a Dropbox or Airbnb, it might not have transcended. It's not worth, I mean, it's certainly worth thinking through where these communities could be fostered, where they exist, where they could be leveraged, amplified. But I think it's hard to build proprietary communities in a more transparent world. Partially, the world's more transparent. So everybody kind of sees what you're doing. To some extent, it's harder to mask that than even when YC started. I'd be leery of that as a comprehensive strategy. I think in verticals that other people don't want to touch, it's probably the most likely to work. Meaning like GovTech or something? Yeah, or or vertical where the understanding premium, like the technology is so hard. You could think of some biotech field space where it would be hard for outsiders to kind of even get up to the vocabulary level and certainly not read the research papers and understand what's what and what conferences to attend. So the more distance between insiders and outsiders, maybe the community stuff would be a great a great strategy. I don't know the answer on how to do it horizontally. I'm more interested in horizontal um, execution. So for me, the community approach has felt a little bit difficult. I can see some some ideas I'd like to play around with, I guess, experiment with um, around horizontal communities. I actually think it truthfully, it's easier to be horizontal within a company. Like, so for example, my time as an executive, I could probably have three to maybe eight mentees, kind of proteges at a time, because I'd go from task to task, meeting to meeting, and I could have different types of people work on different types of projects, give them feedback, have them shadow me, see what they could accomplish constantly. In venture, it's hard to do that in parallel. Uh, I don't have an answer, which I mean, I guess in some ways invigorating. It's why there's a velocity of change in venture is that if someone were able to lock this down, they could have, you know, a 50-year ride, but I don't know how to do it. I do think about it, um, and is there a path there? But, you know, in some ways where we started is true if you hire people that other people won't hire, and you have a formula of what you're looking for, and people don't copy that formula for five or 10 years, that would give you enough window to find future stars, promote those stars, and by the time people realize that they've missed that those people will have a 10 or 20 year, you know, rocket right. ride. Yeah. I think what was most interesting is if YC didn't leverage their initial sort of wedge of, of that type of archetype founder to get some big wins that would then create a flywheel that would get other founders, maybe it might not have taken off in the same way. So maybe these communities are wedges into. Yeah. I mean, at some point you need the validation, right? I, I think there's always a question of how long does it take to validate an idea, a project within a company and how much capital or social capital do you have to deploy until you get the evidence that it's working. So, but once you get it working, then you can build a brand. It can be aspirational and that will give you another you know, period of time. But if your hit win ratio declines over time, you have the same problem. Um, like ultimately you have to sustain that advantage with some degree of success, but you can, you know, get a window of three to five years where people are following the halo of prior successes. Yep. You were just talking about, you know, three to eight proteges at a time. You've been mentoring people for, for a very long time. Is there something you've changed in the way you mentor people now versus 10 years ago in terms of some key principle or key framework or? 
Not really. Maybe I have a little bit more of a formula in the back of my head of just kind of what I'm looking for, what I'm watching for. Maybe it's a little bit more clearer and maybe it was initially very ad hoc. But it's not like I don't think the framework's changed as much as it's more clear in my own brain what the signals I'm looking for in are, where to inject feedback, maybe the conceptual framework of how to apply sort of different pieces of feedback are more straightforward, but no, I don't, I don't think the formula has changed. Anuj and I are working on this piece around evaluating markets and ideas. And part of it is inspired by, but your talks, you, you've, you've talked with me and others about the things that you look for in markets. You look for, you tweeted this low NPS scores, you know, highly fragmented industry, vertical integration, also mentioned anomalous market reaction, uh, opportunity to leverage an accumulating advantage. And then the Peter Thiel secrets, of course, yep. Is there anything else you would add to that list? No. Well, I think you skipped over simplification. So when you're taking a fragmented market that has traditionally low NPS and you want to vertically integrate, the key is to vertically integrate in a way that simplifies the entire value proposition. And that sometimes can be challenging. But I think simplification is indispensable to controlling the entire experience and delivering a high NPS. It's difficult to do without the simplifying step. So I'd probably highlight that. And then you want to have an accumulating advantage that... Basically, you know, basically translated because sometimes people get confused by the phrase. Basically, means the business gets better every day, gets easier or better every day. Yeah, Peter Thiel also wrote about timing and then allowing for expansion into adjacent niches. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I have a different view of timing, and it is maybe it's controversial among investors. But to me, there's no such thing as a mistimed company. I think it's the founder's job is to triangulate to what's possible. And so to me, when the founder says I was wrong about the timing or I missed the timing, it just means you didn't do your job. Like you, you need to plan for what's possible today and figure out hacks. So for example, Square started with a card reader. It was a device you plugged in, a hardware device you plugged into at the time, basically just your phone, whether Android or iOS. And Jack always thought of it as it was a temporary hack that ultimately... Square would not require hardware and certainly wouldn't be dependent upon hardware on your phone, which has proven to be the case. It's now roughly, you know, eight years later, but, or yeah, about eight years later, but Square Cash is the engine of the company, which has nothing to do with hardware. Square mobile payments, a huge fraction. I haven't seen the, I haven't looked at the latest earnings call like numbers, but more than the majority of transactions must be running off of an iPad, not, not a phone. But Jack is a st- obviously extraordinary and stellar entrepreneur, and he knew his job was to shepherd the product into the market with what was possible to do at the time, not wait for you know massive inflections in consumer behavior. That's what a good entrepreneur does is triangulates, how do I get to where I need to get to, where I want to get to, with what's possible to do today with hacks and bridges, not sitting back and whining. Yeah. How does that look for you? On the other side of the table as an investor, when evaluating if the timing is right. Oh, it's pretty easy, actually. Truthfully, it's something I learned from this old Sequoia website, if anything, is uh, the why now question. Just every good founder has to have a great answer to why now. And typically, 
If the timing is going to work, the founder has a very compelling answer to what has changed in the world in the ether since there's not that many new ideas on our table. In many ways, ideas have been tried before, but the great founders have an astute answer to why now. And you can tell as soon as it comes out of their mouth, they're like, yes, that's a good answer. And so I would invest in a founder who has a compelling why now answer all the time. Without a why now answer, I typically am in pass mode. And that the why now can be there's a change in consumer behavior. There's a new technology platform. The economics and cost structure of something it's now possible to do. The data is available that wasn't historically available. There's a wide set of why now answers. But without that, I'm almost always in pass camp. When doing this research project, we found zero to one was probably the most articulate about evaluating certain market structures, uh, at least for written material. And one thing that Peter Thiel talks about is you want to have a monopoly in a certain niche uh, or niche is uh, what Twitter told me how to pronounce it. And do you uh, agree with that thesis of starting with a very small like market that you're operating in and then try and extract, develop a monopoly and then expand out? No, Peter and I have always disagreed on this. I am very, I'm very much a horizontal investor and I like people who start with very broad ambition and then make it work. I think it's more difficult to do that. I think Peter may be right that his advice is more like likely to yield a successful outcome for somebody. But my advice and counsel will yield better companies, bigger companies, more important companies. So I'm always looking for horizontal. I want breath. I don't want like niche markets. Once in a while, I can be persuaded that a particular opportunity should be best addressed by niche approach, but I like to solve for all first. And it requires more capital typically, certainly requires a more talented team to do that. But I think sometimes what happens, and the reason why I don't like Peter's philosophy, is if you attack a niche market, it's just as hard and just as challenging. It takes seven to 12 years. And by the time you've conquered it and have your monopoly, everybody's tired and exhausted. And so you don't get around to phase two, act two. And so I'd rather do it all in one act if I can, if I have the team and capital that'll support that. You know, Peter's definitely abstracting from the Facebook lesson where it did work. Facebook started as college, college only. Then went to high school and then went to everybody and it worked. But I think he's overreacting, oversteering people from that example. In the example, don't get of... me fired. I get fired before I start. <laughs> Sorry. Don't read zero to one. It's terrible. <laughs> when you think about businesses that have prioritizations and focus, could you argue when you do a horizontal type approach that you are at the same time doing, you have a focus on a certain niche as well? Well, you definitely need to figure out how you're going to get initial traction. Like, so there's no substitute, particularly for consumer products, but even for enterprise products is you need your first customers. You need your first users somehow. And typically that they may be more concentrated than randomly distributed. Although if they're randomly distributed, that might be a good thing, but it's typically easier to get a set of users that look like each other. You have to start somewhere and you have to get the flywheel going. And it's often easier to do that with a narrow segment. The problem and the risk that I really hate with that approach though, is if you're wrong about where to start, you get a lot of friction, a lot of negative feedback. Like users don't use the product. They don't like the product. They don't engage with the product. They don't retain. And you don't know whether your product's broken or you just picked the wrong set of users to start. And there's almost no way to tell the difference and discern that when you're very early. So my approach, which is very horizontal, solves that problem because you don't have a top-down philosophy of what users you want. And you're just watching. 
So this was our PayPal example, which, you know, is my rebuttal to Peter, is at PayPal, we didn't start and think that we were going to get eBay power sellers to be our core market, but we noticed that there was 54 of them that adopted the product that wasn't really well suited for them by themselves. Unfortunately, mostly David Sachs was astute enough to notice this. And then we doubled down on the eBay market, the power seller market, but we noticed it was observation among a broad set of users, and we noticed an anomalous adoption among a concentrated set. So that's a better strategy. I like anomalies. I talk about it a lot. Find something you didn't expect, and then that's your insight is, oh, shoot, this product isn't even really suited for these people, but they're adopting it. They're going through a lot of pain, so there must be a there there. Okay, now that we have 54, can we get 540 of them? Now that we have 540 of them, can we get 5,000 of them? Now that we have 5,000, can we get 50,000? Then 500,000. I tend to think in 10 X's. I roughly, and as a VC, I do this a lot. You know, Delian's watched me do this a fair amount. I will basically give founders 10 X credit. So if you're at a thousand users, I believe you can get to 10,000, but I don't believe you can get to a hundred thousand. Or if you're at a million dollars in revenue, I believe you can get to 10 million in revenue, but I don't believe you're going to get to 50 or a hundred. So I'll basically write checks in advance of about a 10 X growth. So show me 50. Great. Okay. Now the next projects, how are we going to get 500? Great. Okay. Let's get 5,000 and then keep doing that. That works pretty well. And then looking for what types of users, but the problem is if you solve too narrowly, you don't build a muscle to solve broadly often. So sometimes it's too easy to solve narrowly. And then you, you're confusing your ability and internal competency with solving the real problems. So in, in other words, restate this is, and I think Peter would agree with this, certainly something Vinod always taught me and reminded me of, you want to solve your biggest risks first. And what mediocre founders do is they solve the easier risks first, the ones they know how to solve. The most important thing you can do, both in terms of your valuation and your self-confidence, is take the three most risky things and conquer them. As soon as you conquer those risks and knock them off the table, your valuation by definition will increase. And your conviction level about whether this is something you should do with three to 13 years of your life should increase. And your ability to convey that to other people and persuade them to join your crusade should increase. So I always write down the top two to four, maybe five, three to five risks for a business and counsel the founder to address them in order of difficulty, not in order of ease. But isn't some, don't sometimes those risks, some of the most hardest things require a lot of money and you can only... That's fine. But then raise the appropriate amount of money. You know, another kind of anodism is if the prize is big enough, the money's there. Like if, if, if the upside of being right is substantial and you can decompose the logical steps and the risks associated with it, at least in the last 10 years, there's plenty of money and capital available to support those ideas. Uh, when you're looking into opportunities that are on the edges of things, um, so for example, like crypto as crypto mania was going on, are you still going on? How do you uh, look at those opportunities compared to Square, Open Door, which are going after established markets? I think there are two different types of markets in the world, what I call non-consumption market and consumption market. And basically, it's whether the market's pre-existing and well-known and or you're shipping a new product that no one's ever used before. Hence, the market's kind of a no-bull. I think there are investors and founders who are better suited for some rather than the other. So my friend Kevin Hart, he's been a friend of mine for 30 years and co-investor for like 15, really is excellent at decomposing a current market figuring out what incumbents are vulnerable and how to attack them and succeed. And he's done it multiple times as an executive, as an entrepreneur, as a board member. He just is awesome at that. Then there's markets that don't exist and nobody knows that they could be great markets. Think YouTube back in the day. 
nobody knew what the market was for short video consumption. Those markets are better suited for different types of investors often and different types of founders. And I tend to prefer the non-consumption markets where I can find them. I'll invest in the consumption markets, but they require an order of magnitude better idea in some ways because you're dealing with incumbents. You're dealing with a lot of pre-existing inertia. Uh, the non-consumption, you just have to be directionally right. And if you're directionally right, there's nobody else doing it by definition. And so you can grow really, really fast for a few years before anybody figures out what the hell's going on and why it's interesting. So I prefer those markets where I can find them. But you're going to have a hit error rate in those markets that's pretty high because by definition, there's almost no way to diligence them. One thing that Sam Altman talks a lot about is he doesn't necessarily care about the market size today, but in five to 10 years, that's what's most important. He finds a lot of investors don't think about that. How do you maybe talk about uh, these ideas that are on the edges or even those are in existing established markets? How do you think about growth rates when you are evaluating things? I'm not sure I've ever in 15 years like thought about like a TAM. I do have intuitions of like markets are either large or small. And once in a while, I'll run into somebody who's pitching something and where my intuition says that feels relatively small. And I'll ask them to yeah, sort of rebut that. But I've never like done a calculation of what a TAM is. Partially because you have a first derivative problem, which is like, what's the rate of growth? Um, because you're aiming five to 15 years in the future. And it's very clear sometimes that the world's in flux by definition. It's a why now kind of question. So that's part of it. Secondly is all these non-consumption markets by definition have a zero TAM in many ways. Third, I think TAM is highly correlated with the value proposition and the quality of the product. So if the product was amazing, suddenly the TAM is very explosive. And if the product's just good, it's an okay TAM. So what I ask is a kind of a different question, which is value creation. So what I care about is how much value are you creating for somebody? What's the magnitude of the value you're creating? The bigger the economic transformation, the bigger the value you're creating, you're going to capture some fraction of that as a company. Bell curve distribution on that is 10 or 30%. So if you create a lot of value, you're going to capture a fair amount of value. And so the question I ask founders is like, who are you creating value for and why? And if that feels large and there feels like a reasonable number of people in the world that might have this problem, then at least at a seed level, certainly a seed level and probably an A level, I can easily invest. I think it's reasonable for a venture growth investor type to ask a little bit more hard-edged questions around market size if they're investing later in the company's trajectory. But I think at a seed series A, it's kind of a fool's errand. Gotcha. Fair enough. You, you brought a lot of uh, new things I haven't heard before across my consumption. They talk about when you're evaluating opportunities, or at least within markets. Uh, in a riff on zero to one, what is a fundamental truth that you believe on evaluating startups that you believe most investors do not? I think there's several, but I don't think any of them like I'm unique, but I think are rarer. One is that horizontal is better than vertical. Second, that the only question that really matters is the quality of the founder. You know, Delian posted about this last week and you can read it, but fundamentally, the earlier you invest, if you're right about the founder, that's the only thing you need to be right about and everything else will take care of itself. So I just isolate as much as I can to what's the quality and skills of the founder and or founding team because it can be broader than one person. And where I've been right about that, everything is taking care of itself. And where I've been wrong about that, 
once in a while, the market's good enough that you can make things kind of work, but it's certainly not a fun ride. And then third, vertical integration, although truthfully, this is becoming more common to see. So when I used to lobby for and advocate for and fund or run companies that were vertically integrated, people thought that was crazy. It kind of roughly correlates with the success of Apple. So I've always been an Apple fan of sort of emulated Apple, you know, sort of since high school. And I always thought the right thing to do was to follow Apple's strategy. It's like, find the most important company in the history of the world, the most successful, valuable company, and emulate it. It's like what we do in sports. If you find good players, you emulate them. Everybody else was critiquing Apple like, oh, they're not open or they're this or that. And I was like, well, I'd rather be Apple than whoever you're emulating. And so I was always a fan of like, well, why is Apple successful? Let's decompose that and then replicate it and understand it. So I would always try to pursue an Apple-esque strategy. With the clear success of Apple and people that have sort of applied some of its precepts, like let's say Square... I think there's more common understanding of why that may be true. I think also, you know, some writers like Ben Thompson at Stratechery have done a great job of articulating some of this. Uh, so it's more approachable for people, um, more broadly. So I don't run into as much resistance as I used to 10 years ago with like a vertically integrated strategy. Yeah. On, on that note, you're definitely the pioneer in popularizing these vertically integrated business models. And uh, I guess for people that are listening, a vertically integrated business is one that owns multiple parts of the value chain. So anywhere from like raw material or where it starts out to delivering the user experience. So one thing I noticed is that both Square and Open Door, they're in regulated markets. Uh, I work a lot with Atrium. It's a regulated market in a law firm. Do you think full stack businesses or these vertically integrated businesses can work in non-regulated markets? Oh, absolutely. It's a whole lot easier, actually. Um, of course they can. I mean, I think the reason why you do vertical integration is a couple fold. So let's like break this down. First is if you care about the end user experience, you have to control the whole experience. That's, that's the number one lesson from Apple. You cannot deliver a high quality product experience if you use components. The components by definition will be non-perfectly integrated or there'll be trade-offs or you'll drop the ball on that in the seam, sort of the handoff won't be perfect. So if you actually want to deliver a world-class product, you need to control all the variables. The more variables you control, the more, the more you can optimize so you deliver something unique. So that's the number one thing. And that applies from content down to financial services. And it's actually easier to do in non-regulated business. Think Apple is basically doesn't compete in a regulated sector. Um, and it's the kind of pioneer of the strategy. Second, the reason why you want to be vertically integrated or full stack company is you control your own destiny. And that's very important, I think, as an investor and a founder, is if I were going to bet my life for 10 years on something, I'd want to think that what I do ultimately will dictate whether I succeed or fail. And where you're derivative from other components or constituents or partners, you don't control your own destiny. So when you're vertically integrated, it's just a question of how good are you and how good is your team. And every every lever in that business equation is something you can control. So that's really important. Third is just value creation. And that this is a function of investor, I think. But fundamentally, when you're vertically integrated, you typically capture more value. So instead of getting 1% times a lot, you typically get 30% or 60%. And that te- the math of that, when you're really good at it, tends to trump the math of a small fee from a lot of people. Yep. One thing uh, I noticed about these vertically integrated businesses is that often initially, because it's very capital intensive, they have low margin. And there's often incentive to show higher margin. They can do that by like developing a marketplace or they can essentially outsource some of the things that they might used to do. When do you think these businesses should consider pivoting towards higher margin uh, opportunities versus sticking on their own, like maintaining the whole whole stack? 
fairly complicated to give a one size fits all answer for that, but like a framework for thinking that through is I think it is factually true that they may start with lower margins. I think the question as an executive I would ask and also as an investor or board member I'd ask is what's going to change over time? So you don't want to fund a permanently low margin business, but what you may want to do is understand when do new dynamics kick in that create and unlock greater margins. So there can be classically, you know, economics of scale. So at some level of scale, the cost structure changes and therefore we can capture that. Or there may be leverage points at some level of scale. We have leverage with a particular supplier or component piece that we have to buy and we can negotiate this down sort of like economics of scale. Third is there may be a network of facts between, you know, certainly in a marketplace between buyers and sellers where you can absolutely charge more of a premium because you're actually connecting and matchmaking in a scalable way that the individual constituents wouldn't be able to do on their own. And so you can actually charge for that. So I think the key is understanding intellectually in a framework sense, what will change over time. And if you don't have a good answer to that, then you may be a permanently low margin business, which is not particularly exciting. If you have very specific answers, like let's say hardware, as an example, typically if you manufacture a thousand units, you're going to pay a significant bomb, build a materials sort of cost for that. And at 10,000 units, the cost is going to go down and a hundred thousand, the cost is going to go down a lot more. That's probably true. And it's been proven for like probably 40 or 50 years of startups so it's reasonable to identify where those step functions are for my product and maybe not worry about the margins for the first thousand units because I know they're going to get better at 10,000. I know they're going to get better at 100,000. Now, you'll have some diminishing marginal returns. They don't get infinitely better in hardware, but you can kind of triangulate to where they're likely to get to. So that's very critical. Second is low margins also depend upon your cost of acquiring customers. So if you have the entire world asking for your product for free and there's nothing you have to do, it's not that bad to have a low margin business because all your margin is going to be free cash flow. And that's what you really care about is how much cash is coming back to you. But if I have to run TV ads and interrupt everybody to let them make them aware of my product, to get them to buy my product, it's incredibly expensive. I'm burning a hell of a lot of money up front before that margin starts coming back to me. And if it's a low margin, it's coming back to me in very small doses over a very long time. So I'm burning an incredible amount of money just to prop up this business. So for example, if I had an SEO strategy that was free and I could use the SEO to scale to 100 million users, great. I don't really care about 10% margin because that's all profit and I've spent no money up front. So it totally depends upon your cost of customer acquisition. So we think about it, at least at KV, and I'm sure I'll think about it this way at Founders Fund, is in terms of payback time. And so your payback time is a function of what do you get paid, time your margin, versus what you have outlay. So with a low margin, that can be risky. But if your margin's either great, so you get, you get a lot of cash right away, or your cost initially is very low, then the equation works. I want to play a game where we... Talk about requests for startups. So we name a sector, uh, a space, and then you say where you think a big idea could could come from it or where you want entrepreneurs listening to explore and experiment. First, we'll start with a personal favorite, fitness. My goal to incubate a fitness business with you at some point. What do you think is going to work in that space? There's so many things that haven't worked. What would you like to see people? Well, the, the key to fitness is showing people results, compressing the feedback loop, which is there's proven models of how to get fit and they're well understood. The art is delaying, deferring gratification 
so that you achieve the results you're looking for. And, you know, there's nutritional elements to fitness. There's certainly activity elements to fitness. There may be sleep elements. But net-net, it's a trade-off of immediate gratification versus deferred gratification. And so I think the art to this is reducing the – compressing the feedback loop so that you get the positive feedback loop as quickly as possible, and that changes the dynamics. Yes, you can use data. You can quantify things. You can personalize things. Certainly, you can put individuals on a program that's more suited for their goals and aspirations than the average person. So the flaw of averages is also a real fundamental driver here that generally people give advice that's made for the population as a whole, the middle of the bell curve because there's more people in the middle of the bell curve. You can sell more books, more programs, more classes, whatever. But I think we're going to move to a personalization model where for Keith, maybe the right thing to do is to do four classes of berries a day. I mean, I, I debate with my trainers all the time whether I'm overtraining. And the truth is my body likes overtraining. My body responds better to what would classically be thought as overtraining. I don't need a lot of rest and recovery. And I can tell the difference. I've done like, you know, kind of hacks on myself. I really just don't need it. And maybe other people need more, you know, so you need to maybe have blood tests to know this stuff. There's a lot of like current world, maybe too invasive um, ways to measure this. So that'll get simpler when you have less invasive, more convenient ways to measure things. But I think it does come down to feedback loops. Right. Is this related to your goals idea? It, That's an example. Start? It's an illustration. Is that the wedge though? Where do you, where yeah, do you I that? think that the key, well, I think, Per my point, I want to do the goals idea completely horizontally, which people think is crazy. But secondly, one of the reasons I want to do it horizontally is that fundamentally, most goals are very similar to the fitness idea, which is there is a well-understood program that would be good for people to follow. There's maybe a search cost involved in identifying what's the right program to follow, but we can solve that. Once you put someone on a program, usually the trade-off is deferred gratification versus immediate gratification. So how do you compress the feedback loop? Then third is the personalization is depending upon where your baseline is versus what your goal is, you may want to put people on a slightly different program and adjust the program based upon your progress or your rate of progress. No different than like a tennis coach would do. So some students will pick up in their proficiency at a a more rapid clip and advance to different drills at a different rate. And that's what you want to do with software. Software is really good at measuring where you are versus where you want to get to and adjusting where books and people are not as good and proficient at that. So that's why I think all of the goals in life have these common denominators. And so that's why one of the reasons to do it horizontally. Yeah. And another thing you've thought a lot about is longevity. Is there a specific idea around there? Yeah. So similarly, let's apply, we can apply the same concept to, to living. Let's say you wanted to live another five or 10 years productively. There's proven evidence that if you slept eight hours a day, almost never had less than seven hours sleep, probably engaged in some intermittent fasting or severe calorie restriction, that you would absolutely increase your lifespan. That said, how many people want to spend 30 years on an intermittent fasting program to get five years at the end without having confidence and conviction that it's going to work? What if though, on the other hand, you could take a, let's say a micro drop of blood every day or every week, and it would actually show you accurately the cell, your cell, your true cellular age. And this is actually doable. There is a test that would tell you your cellular age today. It just happens to be $3,000. So you can't do it every day and you wouldn't want to because it's a full draw of blood. But imagine that you could take a micro drop for a dollar a day or a dollar a week. And based upon changes in your behavior, it would actually show you, you know, becoming 30 years old or 20 years old. A lot easier to keep people on a program, like going to bed earlier, eating differently or working out or whatever differently. If you can show them direct, credible impact on their body. 
By the way, you think a lot about being healthy and, and fit for, for a long time. So I, one year I, I spent going to Barry's three, four times a week, probably inspired by you. Then, uh, I got too jacked as it happens. And yeah, too many compliments. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I switched to basketball three, four times a week. Can I play basketball for the next 20 years, three, four times a week? Or how would you advise me or anybody, you know, my age thinking about? Well, let's see. You're not that old yet. So I, I don't think you have to 30, worry. You know, you, yeah, you, you, you still play. I think you've got a little bit of room there. Basketball is probably not the single best thing you can do if your goal, it depends again what your goal is. Goal is to be, live as long as possible. Yeah. Basketball is probably not the single best thing you can do. What's the best? The best thing to do is effectively high intensity interval training. And you really, Barry's is very well suited. So what you want to do is bring your heart rate up and down and bring it up to close to max and bring it back down and bring it back up. So hill sprints, like you don't need a Barry's, like you don't need a brand doing hill sprints like 30 minutes 20 minutes up and down a hill sprint up jot down sprint up that will work pretty well um so something like that basketball tends not to be great for that pickups actually a little bit better than organized basketball because you don't have as many whistles so the interruption of basketball just you don't get the up and down in the in the you know the right patterns soccer is a lot better because you tend not to have as many whistles and stoppages of play so soccer long sprints in soccer um are actually pretty good things like swimming or yoga no, swimming is not good because you're not going up and down. Uh, yoga is terrible as far as I can tell, actually. I mean, I have a <laughs> – maybe this is my most contrarian view is that stretching is bad for you. Yeah. There's actually some evidence now, but I've had this view for 30 years. The logic of the view is that almost all catastrophic injuries that people suffer, think ACL tears, are hyperextension injuries. So one way to prevent hyperextension injuries is to be tight because your natural ability to hyperextend is constrained. So, you know, I've actually been fortunate enough to play a lot of soccer and basketball over the years and have very few injuries. And I think it's partially because I refuse to do things like yoga. Now, it does compromise your performance, just to be clear. You're making a trade-off of flexibility versus injury prevention. Yeah. I don't get injured because I don't... I don't uh, jump or drive. You don't, you don't defense yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, just, just be soft. He sits at the, sits at the perimeter, yeah. throws up three-pointers yeah. once in a while. Exactly. exactly. I mean, is there going to be a multi-billion dollar version of Barry's that also takes care of nutrition, that also becomes like a co-working space, that also becomes I – don't, I don't know. Like is there – Well, I think that I would love to fund an intersection of fitness and nutrition. Yeah. I've tried to pitch founders on this and most of them are not horizontally ambitious enough. They want to decompose it. But the truth is you cannot get outrageously positive results by isolating the two. You need to eat in conjunction with your activity and you actually need to sleep. So there's a recover, there's an activity and a recovery and think about the nutrition element as fuel and the sleep as recovery. And when they're in balance, I think you get incredible results but unless you can stitch them together, actually, I think you need the whole the trifecta. Right. That's something I would fund or even run or, you know, yeah. found. Right. The question is then how to do that, how to do that in a scalable way, meaning like something that's convenient enough that a normal person would do it. Yeah. Like the nutrition tracking alone is an unsolved problem. Just tracking what people eat, let alone prescribing for them what they should eat. Yeah. We're going to fund it based on this podcast. Someone's listening to start that business. Before, instead of going sector by sector, what's one other pet idea that you want someone out there to, to build that you don't see people work on? Yeah. So, I mean, I also tweeted about this a while ago. I think one of the greatest successes over the last 30 years has been homeschooling. So today, roughly 8 to 10% of Americans are homeschooled. And the evidence is just so compelling. That and much, on any I mean. metric, people are homeschooled, outperform socially and academically. Yet it's so painful. Like the friction associated with homeschooling your kids is very real time commitment, sourcing content, all this stuff like programming. 
if someone could figure out a way to create a method for parents who want to homeschool to more easily, with less friction, simplify, uh, so that it's more attractive um, from an investment perspective, I think that company would be massive. That easily 10% of America would go to 30%. And is it Airbnb for homeschool or what does it look like? Well, that's an approach that people have tried, but that's not truly homeschooled. That's like some hybrid something. I mean, can you provide tools for a parent to absolutely is it successfully teach their kids at home in a way where they feel like they're getting the best programming, that they're efficient with their time? I don't know how to do it, but I would love to find a way to do it. Yeah. Keith, you're known for being a contrarian. We just talked about stretching is going to alienate many people. Yeah. What's another thing that today in 20, uh, 2019 you're contrarian about that maybe people might not know? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I have to keep up with my contrarianness because <laughs> some of these ideas, I've had like these ten, five or 10 ideas that a decade ago or 15 years ago, like the world thought were crazy. Were, were, did think was crazy and now they're mainstream and or my friends thought I was crazy when I got married in November um, some of the toasts actually told some stories about all my crazy views um, about five years ago six years ago I thought about funding or what we jokingly would call the Raboy Institute which is to publish research backing up my views <laughs> I tried to hire one of our basketball friends uh, to run the, the Raboy Institute but the funny thing is the world's caught up so like let me like, give you a couple examples I was, I've been on the sleep crusade for 20 years and optimized my entire life around always getting eight hours sleep and adamant about it. And my friends make fun of me sometimes. My partners at KDE would make fun of me. And now the research is just incredibly compelling. I mean, just read Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, and it'll change your life. Um, people die unnecessarily early. High school students get in car crashes at ridiculous rates, all because they don't get enough sleep. And your athletic performance is highly correlated. All this stuff is about sleep. The single best thing you can do for the human race is get better, deeper, and more sleep. So that's no longer controversial. It's just a question of spreading the information right. now. Same thing was true of my stretching, actually, and antithesis to stretching. Um, there was no research that supported that. There now, there now actually are studies, and you can debate this with a, a pretty you know, high fidelity with someone um, who's interested in performance and injury prevention. And it would be a much more nuanced debate than it was five, even five years ago. So there's a bunch of things that the world's kind of caught up with me, which is nice. I still think ketchup is like the best food for people, which is a crazy view. And I'm probably going to have to fund that study myself. <laughs> uh, my friends really enjoy making fun of me about my ketchup addiction. But uh, I have a few others, but I need to come up with some new ones. Um, because like the good news about being right is you're right. The bad news is that you no longer sound that crazy. Yes. One element to illustrate your contrarianness, and perhaps we'll end on this segment, is I'm going to say a person, and then I want you to say a disagreement you have with that person. Now, you may agree with a lot of those, a lot of things with that person, but something where you disagree. We've talked with Peter Thiel a little bit, but let's say another thing where you disagree about that maybe people don't know. <sighs> Peter. Yeah, I highlighted most of them around this monopoly niche market, I think is a big one. Or we've had a longstanding debate about how much investors can be helpful. And I think we've come to actually a pretty good reconciliation of it may vary by stage and they may be very complimentary. So I think those are the two biggest areas with Peter, certainly from a business perspective. If you were became president or some political operative and you were his chief of staff, where might you disagree there? It's a good question. We agree a lot politically. I tend to be, I guess, probably more pro-immigration than Peter is. I don't think either of us are on, you know, extreme pole from a perspective of like the country as a whole, but I tend to be more 
free immigration, open immigration, and Peter meets. And what about this trade or globalization? Peter is an anti-globalization, but he maybe says it's overstated or we should focus more on innovation. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Peter. I think he's certainly convinced me that the world was on this ridiculous crusade of globalization is the greatest thing ever. And I think the last five years have, you know, really been a retrenchment from that. And the evidence across all markets, all countries is there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with globalization. There are some benefits to globalization, but there are a fairly strong set of negatives. And so I think Peter and my views on that are probably pretty similar. Right. How about Sam Altman, either as it relates to building companies or politics or something else? Well, so Sam, I mean, Sam and I agree a lot. He was, he officiated my wedding. So obviously a fan of Sam's. I think I've invested in more YC companies. If you certainly include my angel investments plus my venture investments and more angel, more YC companies than anybody else, maybe with the possible exception of Ron Conway over the last decade. So clearly I like what they're doing. I tend to not like founders I'm working with to talk to customers. Uh, I tend to like to do the Steve Jobsian innovation. It's your idea. It's your role to figure out what the innovative solution is. It's not the customer's job to describe it. YC tends to prescribe um, working with customers, actively working with customers. And I think there's, you know, some probably net net, some room for each, but I'm, I tend to be on one pole. The YC tends to be on the other pole. So we'd probably disagree a little bit on that. Probably in the specific illustration of a actual company, Sam and I would probably agree with what the better approach is. But as a philosophy as a whole, now he's also teaching to a batch of 200 people. I'm sort of mentoring or advising or counseling a set of like 10 people on a custom basis. So my advice can be um, more inconsistent based upon the specifics of specific skills of a company, specific market opportunity, specific metrics that I'm looking at of what the right, you know, sort of path forward is. You know, from a ideological perspective, you know, he's been on this kind of universal basic income crusade, which I think is silly and counterproductive. But if he wants to run experiments to validate my views, I'm perfectly fine <laughs> with him wasting his money doing it's, so. It's the Reboy Institute. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the count, it's the counter Reboy yes, Institute. Yes, exactly. Reed Hoffman. Reed tends to believe more in teams than individual accomplishments. Um, you know, at PayPal, Peter had a very strong view that individuals accomplish things and teams accomplish a lot less, that usually there's one heroic person bringing people with them. And I tend to subscribe to that school of innovation. Reads more of the football school yeah. model, even though he's not a sports fan at all, but he would subscribe to that view where everybody gets aligned, synchronized, and executes the same play. Like, for example, you could look at pair programming as a live debate that I have with some of my friends. And I don't actually know Reed's exact view on pair programming, but I'm not a particular fan of pair programming. Yeah. I think the best, you know, sort of engineers are a bit of a cowboy and a bit of an artist and want to be that way. I think there's parts of code that should be pair programmed where you're doing money moving code in the square case where everything has to be zero defect, but most startups are not running a zero defect operation. But I think there's a interesting debate there and it's almost cultural. Obviously reads more interested in politics these days and is more, has always been more liberal since I've known him um, since like at least 2000 when I met him. But you know, I think there's yeah. lots of reasons behind that. He's a classic maybe 1970s Silicon Valley liberal and I'm a classic 1970s conservative. Right. Yeah. It is pretty incredible that him and Peter Thiel have had, you know, friendship for what, 30 plus years, yep. you know, and are such polar opposites in some way. Well, Ke yeah. I mean, Kevin Hartz and I grew up the same way. Kevin, Kevin and I went to college together and he used to be the president of like the Stanford Democrats and I was president of Stanford Republicans and I had fun um, debating him. And right. So let's, let's talk about uh, Kevin Hartz. How about from a business perspective or 
Uh, Kevin and I are pretty similar. Um, we have invested in a lot of companies together. We ran kind of an amateur venture fund together for a while that did pretty well, invested in a lot of great companies, including Airbnb and Palantir. And so we have a similar style, similar style of investing. As I talked about, I think Kevin's much more comfortable in pre-existing markets and less comfortable in non, non-existing markets. And I prefer maybe a little bit more of the non, non-existent markets. Um, but we're both very active investors when we were angels together. We would counsel and work with founders actively. We didn't just write a check and walk away. We tend to meet with founders every week or every two weeks. Um, so Kevin's an outstanding mentor for founders. I highly recommend people, you know, raising money from Kevin, working with Kevin. Um, he really is the reason why more than anybody else that I wound up going into technology during the 1990s bubble out here. Kevin was involved in technology, helped found a couple companies that did pretty well. He became an investor. And he'd always try to talk me into uh, moving back out to Silicon Valley, that I was missing this gold rush, and that I should stop the practice of law, and I was wasting my time. And about once or twice a year, I'd come out to San Francisco, mostly for the weather, occasionally to visit friends like Kevin, and um, he'd constantly be lobbying. And one way or the other, in 2000, February 2000, he finally persuaded me, you know, it's just sort of join this crazy world. So it's mostly his fault. Wow. Amazing. David Sachs, another person from your paper. Yeah. Uh, David, so David and I also went to college together. We knew each other pretty well in college. And then I wound up joining PayPal after he had joined, eventually moved over to his team for a while. Uh, PayPal, so worked for him and reported him directly, later invested in his companies, actually joined his boards for a while too. So David taught me several important things. Number one, um, how to grow and groom talent. So David taught me this philosophy of constantly expanding the scope of an individual's responsibilities until you see them breaking. So take every single employee and constantly expand their scope until you hit resistance, and then you'll realize the full potential of everybody. It's the most important thing he taught me. Second thing, David is an outstanding writer, and there's very few outstanding writers in the business world. And he persuaded me by example of the power of effective written communication. Uh, I would look at some of the things he published while he was at Zenefits as examples of the quality of writing. Um, and he would do that in every email, really. So I think it's underestimated how much value there is in clarity of communication um, in the business world. How about Max, Max Lutkin? Max? So Max is an interesting... So I've worked with Max off and on forever since starting in 2000 at PayPal, obviously. But I worked for him at Slide. I served on the board with him at Yelp. I invested and led the first institutional investment at a firm. We've been friends and colleagues for 18 years. The most important things Max has taught me first was the Venn diagram overlap between a technical mind and a first-rate business mind is incredibly rare in Silicon Valley. And if you find that, you should invest in it. Um, The number of people who are exceptional at both is very, very small, and almost all of them are successful. Jack Dorsey is a little bit like that. There's a founder I've invested in that's not announced yet um, that's very much like that. The, in some ways, Vinod's like that, actually, as well. So he has that skill on steroids. He can go very deep technically, but he is a first-rate business mind. He's not just a technologist. Second thing is, uh, fortunately, my uh, investment in YouTube was mostly a function of Max teaching me about technology. So in 2003, I went down to Mountain View while he was still at PayPal and I was working for Peter and asked, you know, what technology trend should I pay attention to as the non-technologist? And he said, Flash. 
And he explained why, why Flash was incredibly disruptive. And I won't bore all the, you know, sort of audience with this, but at the end of the day, it took me three years to find a Flash based company. And it was this random thing called YouTube. And when I ran into Javid at a cocktail, I mean, sorry, at a barbecue, uh, Memorial Day weekend of 2005, and I asked Javid what he was up to, he said, I just launched his startup, this actually website. What's it called? It said YouTube. And I said, is it coded in Flash? Which may sound like the most ridiculous question ever. He said, yes. And I was like, I want to invest. I had finally been able to apply Max's lesson. So the, the value of Flash is like going to be Max's legacy. No, more substantively and more scalably. He also taught me, he really became famous for pioneering what we all now use and think um, as more like a common component is the combination of math and machines. So to solve the fraud problem at PayPal, he was able to construct a product that we called internally Igor that really leveraged individual humans to hit a green or red button when they detected a pattern, but was using math to surface these patterns or potential patterns to the humans. So the combination of man and machine enabled us to economically efficiently scale our fraud rates and reduce them dramatically. So we were burning like roughly $10 million a month before this, and we got to a profitable company in an IPO, mostly on this sort of 99% 99% math, 1% humans, or 90% math, 10% humans model. And I've been able to apply that pretty much ever since. So I took that model and approach to building the fraud teams at Square. Um, fortunately, people, a lot of people were terrified that Square would suffer significant fraud, but I was pretty confident that we could apply this model correctly. We actually used it at Open Door to value houses and avoid errors and mistakes and um, losing money. Many startups that are in the certainly KV portfolio apply this to different problems. But math, Max actually really invented this. Yeah. Wow. Elon? Wow. Uh, so I think the most important things, and, you know, Elon was mostly at the board of PayPal, was on the board of PayPal when I was at PayPal. So Peter, I joined PayPal after Peter, after September 25th, 2000, when Peter came back as interim CEO after Elon had been fired. The most important things I've learned from Elon is a little bit about this horizontal ambition, which is... Elon definitely articulates where does he want to go and then figures out how to sequence to get there, not by, not how to do small steps and then, you know, expand the steps. So he has a vision of where he needs to go, how to validate different pieces of it, how to fund it. That strategy really resonates with me. Secondly is the amount of heroic effort that goes into building a startup. I think being very successful in technology startups requires a lot of sacrifice. And one of the reasons why it's Elon successful is even though he has already had many and massive prior successes, he's still willing to roll the dice and that ability to roll the dice and that ability to sweat the details and the ability to push the envelope on work ethic is what makes him super successful. Most people, once they get to a certain level, that skill, the demeanor, the dedication devolves. Yeah. So sort of in closing, I mean, I want to remark that, you know, sort of half of the people we just mentioned were your college friends. So, you know, I don't know about the listeners, but my college friends aren't doing shit with their lives. <laughs> Step up, Herschel. <laughs> um, so, so the question is, what advice do you have for people who are trying to find their tribe? Well, surrounding your, I mean, there's lots of studies that you, you develop the traits of the five people you spend the most time with. And I, I don't know people, uh, that people are as intentional about that as they should be, given that the studies are pretty compelling. So if you want to be healthier, spend time with 
people who are healthier than you, if you want to be wealthier, spend time with people who have either have the same goal, who are wealthier, or more successful, or smarter. But you develop those traits. And if you don't want the, if you don't like the traits of the people around you, you're going to wind up looking like them. So change them. So I think that's important. So if you're going to be ambitious, if you have ambition, find the most ambitious people you can spend time with. If you want, you know, to think differently, find people who have heterodox thoughts and spend time with them. Don't spend time with people who care what other people think all the time. So I think being conscious about that is one way, whether or not you attend, you know, a specific university or not surround yourself. You do get to choose who you spend your time with, at least the first, you know, five people choose it very, very, very wisely. Yeah. Perfect. Keith or boy, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Always a, always a pleasure and uh, can't wait for the goal startup for the Barry's, uh, Barry's nutrition startup and all that's to come at Founders Fund. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.